And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including host Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome, I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host. Our guest mentor today is Joe Montana, who personifies excellence and integrity both on and off the field. He's one of the greatest quarterbacks ever to play the game, and his trademark was poise in the clutch, earning him the nickname Joe Cool. Yet the word most closely associated with Joe is not winner, it's leader. After leading Notre Dame to the College Football National Championship, Joe led the San Francisco 49ers to four Super Bowl titles, with Joe earning MVP honors three times. He finished his legendary NFL career with the Kansas City Chiefs, and he's a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. His post-football life has been just as successful as a public speaker, author, advertising pitchman, husband, father, grandfather, and angel investor. So welcome, Joe. Thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Dan. So you grew up in Monongahela, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And you know, kind of after high school, you had the choice of playing basketball at NC State or playing football at Notre Dame, which, you know, at the time was almost quarterback you. You weren't particularly big, you didn't have a particularly strong arm, yet you decided to take a shot at ND and you started as number seven, as I understand it, on the depth chart. So why did you choose Notre Dame? Well, growing up in Western Pennsylvania, there were a lot of people from the area going to uh, Notre Dame. Uh, Notre Dame was on TV every Saturday, again on Sundays, and it just became a place that I'd never visited, never saw anything other than what I would see on TV, but I just had a dream that I wanted to go there. You know, luckily for me, I got an opportunity through football there. And as soon as I got an offer from Notre Dame, I quit visiting all, all the other schools for whatever reason. Well, you know, I read your book, Audibles, and you talked about the kind of the importance of your college life at Notre Dame because there's, you know, there's no jock dorms at ND and kind of the pressure that the academic workload put on you. And you said, even when you were struggling, you know, in classes, you'd spend less time looking at game film. What do you think about the changes that you're seeing in college athletics now with name, image, and likeness and the transfer <laughs> portal. And do you think the days of the true student athlete are numbered? Oh my gosh. I don't know. You know, you look at some of these guys, they're making more money than their first year in, in the NFL <laughs> in the draft. So I, I don't, I'm not really sure where it's headed. I just, uh, when you look at how many of these universities and colleges can keep up with that, Right. I mean, because it's got to be a drag financially to somebody somewhere. Right. Some alumni and also to the university. But I think there's a certain necessity of the NIL because the university do or have been taken advantage of the of name and likeness for a long time. But to those degrees, I, I mean, I would think you would it eventually maybe come around to a cap. Right. Where there's a cap 
that you can spend. And then that'll bring things back into line if it ever gets to that. I don't know. I, I'm just guessing. I, and the portal is just it's insane. The things that my two boys transferred and to get them there, you sit there and you go, this was ridiculous to have to go through all these steps. So I get the portal idea, but it's just hard to have kids moving around like that. That was the thing about college. You always knew there wasn't a whole lot of people that could move around. So you're going to yeah. see the kids for at least three or four years together and, and them the same way. And now it's almost like a, an extension in the NFL where it wasn't before. So do you think that your kind of student life and academic experiences that you had at Notre Dame contributed to your success off the field and after football? Oh, by far. I was really fortunate because not that my high school didn't prepare me. I didn't prepare myself for Notre Dame. And so when I got to Notre Dame, I got fortunate because my first roommate's father, Mr. Mike DeChico, he was head of all scholarship athletes for academic reasons. And he also was head fencing coach and a professor there. And he really helped get me through a lot of the first few years, couple of years, you know, just to try to keep me on track there. And totally, as tough as it was in the classroom at that time, it was even worse on the football field. <laughs> it was probably the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the guys that were there, you got Mike Fanning, right? My classmate. Yeah, yeah. First, first pick of the Rams. Steve mm -hmm. Niehaus, first pick ever of Seattle Seahawks. You had Ross Browner, first pick of the Bengals. Willie Fry, first pick of Pittsburgh Steelers. And you go Luther Bradley, first pick of Detroit. I mean, it was the biggest thing I've ever seen. We had enough, a bunch of other guys got drafted too. I mean, Mike was 6'8", right? <laughs> Niehaus was six, 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 five, six, six. And Willie and, and Ross were right in those same category. And, oh, man, I was just, I got overwhelmed. You know, I went, <laughs> I went head to head in bookstore basketball with those guys a lot. Same guys, <laughs> House Fanning and what have you. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of your Notre Dame experience, some of my guests have told me a critical part of their success, especially in their college years, was having a coach or mentor who had supreme confidence in them you know, built up their confidence. It didn't mm. seem to me from reading kind of your story that Dan Devine was that kind of a coach. He kind of always kept you off balance. Even when you'd go in and you'd rally the team to victory, you'd find yourself on the bench. Yeah. Um, did that I, kind of coaching work for you, bring the best? Well, you, or would you rather have had more supportive coach? I, I think, I think it probably helped because I had the same kind of thing happen in high school. I mean, mm -hmm. Well, I was so much better than the kid who was in front of me. And he was really more built to be a defensive end or a tight end. And I just found out, I did this documentary and it was really strange. It's like, I've never heard this before. And that kid, when they moved him to tight, to, from um, quarterback to defensive end, the, the coach told him to beat me up. And told him where, he goes, he needs to be toughened up. I had never heard that before. He goes, I, I, I would have never done like that in practice, but the coach told me to do it. And so I was like, are you getting, you're joking, right? And so then when they moved him to tight end, then things changed because now all of a sudden he was on my side and he needed me for, <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, so it went from there and, and the same happened at, there with, uh, with, with, Coach Devine. I think all head coaches probably have something like that. You know, you look at Bill Walsh, he probably brought some of that along too as we as we moved down the line together. 
Well, we'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Joe Montana. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on list of shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with legendary Field General Joe Montana. Remember, you can also listen to the show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or on your favorite podcast platform on any device at any time. So Joe, following up on that and talking about Coach Walsh, it seemed like at the beginning, he really wanted to build your confidence. He brought you along slowly. He brought you along behind the Berg, and he'd bring you into game situations where you were likely to have success to kind of build that confidence. But as you mentioned, years later, you're a Super Bowl champion. He brings in somebody to compete with you. Looking back, how do you view that? Initially, I think the real thought behind bringing Steven was, you know, I just had back surgery. So they, he wasn't really sure what how long I was going to be hanging around or if I was going to continue to play and, and how I would be after that injury. And the other part of it is, if you look at Steve's, his background before he got to the 49ers, he would have, you know, he never, he didn't set the world on fire anywhere he went. I mean, he was in the USFL. I mean, they paid him a ton of money. He didn't have a stellar start to his career. So I think he just saw that and he ends up flourishing in in that offensive system like, like I did. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a protection for the team in a way, you know, you go, wow, okay. I just won all the couple Super Bowls and here we go. I'm not ready to go anywhere yet. Yeah. <laughs> still got a lot that I want to try to get accomplished here. And but I think all head coaches like he Bill was a perfectionist and he he had a funny sense about him. He always kept you on your toes. Then it wasn't just the quarterback position, but the quarterback position was his his baby, right? He didn't no matter how well you played, he'd throw you a bone every now and then, but most of the time he that's what he expected from you. And growing up, that's kind of the way I was taught. I was taught the winning is, yeah, that's what you do. And I was more afraid of losing than I was uh, happy about winning. I just didn't want to, you never want that feeling of of a loss. And, and I think that he kept that feeling alive <laughs> all the time. <laughs> he demanded perfection of you, not on Sunday, not just on Sunday, I should say, every day of the week. He wanted yeah. to come and be perfect every day. By the yeah. way, on the, sub- on the subject of perfection, you were the closest to perfect when others aren't in the toughest times, the most pressure packed situations in the fourth quarter or what have you, where did that come from? Honestly, I think it's just the nature that I grew up with in, in the area I grew up with. It was, you know, all blue collar growing up there. We had steel mills along the, the river there. We, we had a coal mine in our t- hometown and, so I, there's a lot of tough people who went through a lot of tough things and fought through a lot of stuff. And I think my mom and dad saw sports as a way out of that lifestyle for me. And that's kind of why they pushed me into sports, knowing that they couldn't afford to send me to a place like Notre Dame. But I think I grew up with it. And my dad taught the same way about his bill. It wasn't always about what was good. It was about what you did wrong. And let's try to fix it. And so... You learn to prepare, and I thought I was really well prepared going into San Francisco, but I really didn't know what preparation was about till I met Bill. What his perfection was all about, every day you came into work. And so he wanted the ball 12 inches in front of a guy's number. If he's crossing, running across, 
not eight inches behind him. If you, he goes, you can see the defender. If a guy runs a hook now, the guys on his right side, throw the ball to his left shoulder to help him turn that way. So he doesn't turn into the defender. He wanted you basically to hand the ball to the guy. You worked that hard to get it that way. Well, so for a guy who seemed like he was never nervous, you said that you would get nervous before big games and you actually wanted your teammates to be nervous because if you're not, you're probably not focused enough on winning. You're not putting enough pressure on yourself. How did you relieve tension? Do you have any tips for all of us out there who are nervous before a big speech or a big event? How did did you deal with your nerves? I think the biggest thing is is that helps do that is preparation, right? And and the way I, I explain it to kids and the youth that I talk to is, hey, look, you've gone into test in school, right? And if you're not prepared for that test, you're nervous as hell, all right? And you're a lot more nervous than when you know you've done all the right work. And yeah, you're still going to be a little bit nervous, but it's nowhere near what that what it is when you're not prepared. So understanding and preparing yourself really helps cut down that. I, I when I talk about wanting to be, I want to have that little bit of a that little bit of butterfly feeling because that just tells me it means something to you. If you're not nervous, I mean it doesn't mean much to you. So even that little bit going in to take that test, you want to get an A. And so there's that little bit of nervousness. And it's the same thing. And again, being prepared helps kind of minimize that. This is Dan Hesse. You're listening to the Mentors Radio, and we are with Joe Cool himself, Joe Montana. So the the QB is often referred to as kind of the field general. And, and one of the most important elements of leadership and a great leader, uh, especially in sports, is bringing out the very best from those around you. Any tips on how you bring out the best in your teammates? I think the one thing that you do is by showing what your work ethic is to them, those things can be contagious, right? And, and what you're willing to sacrifice and that I didn't yell and scream at people because we have to work together, right? We're all going to make mistakes. We're all gonna, no, I don't want to throw an interception. The poor left tackle has to block the best pass rusher on every team every week. And those guys get paid too, right? And so I know he's going to make mistakes and how can we help? Not how, not I'm not going to get mad at him because like I said, we're all going to make a mistake. It's just how you deal with those mistakes with each other that allows you to become uh, more confident in you in in your teammates and them to be in you. And But you have to show them first. By the way, I agree with you. I think that, you know, kind of attitude is, contagious and infectious. Um, and part of that is the leadership. You know, I was watching a documentary uh, about you, about the Super Bowl against the Bengals. And you, you know, you bring a certain level of calmness and confidence to the huddle. Tell the briefly, if you would, the John Candy story. I love that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it really wasn't for that. I just try to always be myself all the time, no matter what it is. And yeah, we were getting ready to do that, but TV timeouts are forever in the, you know, especially when you're playing, they feel even twice as long. Well, we were standing out there and Harris Barton was more of a, he was a big people person. So we'd be free during the week. We'd be free for dinner and we'd practice in meetings during the day. And then we'd have to come back for meetings again at night. And he was like a little kid that he couldn't wait to tell you what celebrities he saw while he was out to dinner. So we were just standing there and I had met John Candy a number of times before. 
Um, was he trying to get me to leave San Francisco and go to Canada? Because he owned the Toronto Argonauts and okay. a contract was coming due. And but he just happened to be framed between two guys' shoulders at the end of the huddle. And I didn't remember Harris seeing John Candy. So I went and over and said, Hey, H man, there's John Candy. And he looked at me and he started mumbling some stuff about Super Bowl and you're over John Candy. I don't know. Said, I don't know. I don't know exactly what he said. All I know is he appreciates it a little more today than he did back then. So, but I really did it just because I would, I, I don't know, I would make fun of people. It doesn't matter whatever, what it was. I joked wouldn't, it didn't matter. I just try to be myself and, and not really uh, concern myself with what we were doing at the time because, Hey, we've been there a million times. We did this against our, our, t- our number one defense all the time. <laughs> so um, let's go do it. The timing, you know, the Niners were on their own eight yard line. There were three minutes left in the game in the Super Bowl and you had to drive the whole field because you're behind at the time. So it's a great story. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Joe Montana, discussing performing at your best under pressure. You can listen to our show worldwide on iHeartRadio or on your favorite podcast platform like Apple, Spotify, TuneIn or Google. This is Dan Hesse and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with NFL Hall of Famer Joe Montana about leadership. Well, key role of a leader, Joe, um, is kind of building and strengthening the right team culture. When I was at uh, Sprint Nextel, it was the merger of two basically two different cultures. So I had to build a culture really from scratch. And one of the things I said was definitely going to be part of it was accountability. And you alluded to it a little bit before when you were talking about the players on the team and infectious leadership or or what have you. But you've said that there is, there's no I in team, but there is I in win. Will you elaborate on that? I think one of the things that we, that old saying is no I in team is really talking about more about the me person, not about the I. And I believe that the me person is that guy that kind of messes with that culture and doesn't allow it to get to its full fruition because it's always about me. What are you doing for me? What What's in this for me? And I always say it's, it's the I people who you're looking for is that because you want that person who says, hey, what can I do to make myself better? that will in turn make my team better. And so those are the people that are looking to help grow your organization or your team and make your teams better no matter what. And those are the people that when when I got to San Francisco, we were two and 14 and there weren't a lot of those people on the team. And we could see Bill systematically getting rid of the people and slowly trying to replace them with, they might not have been as good a player, but they wanted, he, he knew what he wanted in, from the locker room and mm-hmm. he he tried to build it and, and bring those type of people on and he didn't care whether you were how good you were we, we lost the starter because he got so enthralled with this thing with jerry rice and that he wanted jerry to tell him that he was the best defensive back he ever played against <laughs> so every day in practice and he just got caught, so caught up in it that it became a distraction he got beat for three touchdowns one day and they did some stuff in the locker room. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nasty place when things like that happen. But uh, 
And then we went to play, I believe it was in Atlanta, and he went, had a hard time getting him out of his room. And then actually on that Tuesday, he was back in Atlanta, but he was playing for Atlanta. A common theme, Joe, that I find among you know successful role models is they have strong relationships with family, friends. Your parents were always very supportive of you in your adult life. It seems that Jennifer, when you met her, really played an important role, took some of the, the pressure off. It was a good guiding force for you. I love the story where, you know, between, you know, when you're when you come off the field as quarterback, you sit on the bench, you get on the, the handset, typically talking to the offensive coordinator, and you realize that you could dial nine and and dial out so you'd be on the road. And instead of everybody's looking at Joe during the game on the handset, they think you're talking yeah. to Hackett and you're actually calling Jennifer and <laughs> and she's giving you support. Tell me how important she's been to your career. Yeah, she was a godsend <laughs> and still is. <laughs> um, yeah, she was, she really helped take the pressure off um, all the time. Um, Cause I missed the little things with the kids as they grew up, but, but she knew how important what was going on was. And I come home from work, you know, we have four kids and I'd play with them for a little bit, an hour or so, and then we'd have dinner and then she would take over and put every, put them in the bed. Cause she knew I still had a couple more hours of stuff, uh, things to do. I mean, mm-hmm. she did fun things just to kind of relieve pressure all the time where, we have these, we have, have your playbook and we had this little plastic zipper we put in your pens and all that stuff. And she would take photos of the kids or, or of her and the kids and in Polaroids and stick them in there before the game with sayings on them. And then the, the, the best thing that she did though, was we went to play uh, our first in, in, we played at home in Stanford and we were going to play again in Cincinnati where we were wearing red again. And so I'd kept the jersey from the first Super Bowl and I didn't think anything of it. And then I got in there, my suitcase, and I was unpacking when we got to the game. And in there was my jersey that I wore in the first Super Bowl. And it said, thought you might want to wear this again. And sometimes I can't remember exactly her terminology, but it was one of those things I get chills thinking about it or, you know, still. She's the strength here in this between us and the kids and the grandkids. She's she's the strong one. On the subject of fatherhood, there's a lot of debate about how to best raise your kids in terms of pressure, you know, little encouragement to succeed yeah. versus nurturing. You know, a lot of parents think that self-esteem is most important. So participation trophies are are a good thing. How do you balance because I know you you know you naturally were a very competitive person I remember you coming off or I read you came off the field after winning a Super Bowl you saw your dad and you tell you the first thing you say to your dad is dad I could have played better and I think even your dad said hey just just relax and enjoy it how do you balance the two you need a little of both right you need a little nurturing but you also you don't need to push but I think you need to steer right and then that's what Jennifer does the best she knows that can how to push those buttons that give support saying that, Hey, there's no reason in the world. You can't do this. You have everything it takes to do. I mean, 
she'll find a way to put in the words better than anyone I've ever been around mm. the way to help encourage and give support that way. I'm not, I'm, I'm not one for those participation trophies because you don't teach anything about life. And I think that's one thing that sports does is teaches you about life. And it's happens in the classroom too. No one points it out, but if you want to get better, if you want to play and participate, you got to get better. You got to find a way to get better. If you want to go to Harvard or you want to go to Notre Dame, you got to get better. You're competing in the classroom the same way that you're competing on sports. Sports does it naturally, but because nobody shows it, it uh, that that's the way it is in the classroom, but it's exactly the same. I like the word steer. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, legendary quarterback, Joe Montana. This is Dan Hesse, and this is the Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with four-time Super Bowl champion Joe Montana about leadership. So, Joe, one of my favorite people ever, although I never got to meet him, was John Wooden. You had a chance to meet John Wooden. What did you learn from him, and what was that experience like? There's so many similarities, I think, between him and Bill and mm -hmm. the demeanor, just the feeling you have when you're around a person like that. And the, the simple things that he says to you mean, you know, it comes from inside. He would have been one of those guys you probably would have loved to play for. I see Kareem all the time and I should have asked him what it was like really playing for him because he seemed so stoic all the time oh he had some great teams too so that probably makes it a little bit easier right. <laughs> 10, 10 championships in 12 years in single elimination that's pretty good that's really good <laughs> so <laughs> but no he, he was just he he had a great way about himself and he carried himself uh you know very positively and and i think that's the way he taught too i mean you, those guys I mean, he wasn't very big and those guys Hey, Kareem's what seven two, and those guys looking down at him. But he, they, he, they all had the utmost respect for him, and and it's not because he demanded it; he deserved it. And he, yeah. by the way, he treated those kids. One thing that he said, I read in in one of your books that you took from him was he said that the number one thing he looked for in a recruit or a player was consideration of others because that would tell whether that was going to be a good teammate or not. And I thought that was very telling. I couldn't agree with him more. Yeah, I agree um, with you there. Kind of that, I mean, that's a great thing because there's that me, that's the I person. That's not the me person. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you've become a very successful investor. How did you get start in venture capital and angel investing? Well, it was pretty crazy because I just retired and getting into the venture world was Ronnie Lott and Harris Barton came to me one day and said, Hey, we're going to, we want to start this fund of funds. And, but what we'll do, what our plan is to do is we lived in, in the Valley and all around us were all the guys who ran all the top tier funds. If, if they weren't your neighbors, your kids were in school with them or they were coaching your kids in, in sports. And, and so we basically leveraged our friendships to get access into all the top tier funds, Sequoia. Kleiner, Excel, Greylock, all the way down the line. And then those guys eventually helped us 
move laterally into spaces like leverage buyout, hedge, and real estate funds. And somebody made a crazy offer on my uh, house we were living in at the time, the during the bubble. And so we sold it and we moved to the wine country. And then I was driving two hours minimum without traffic back and forth. Some days it would be four one way. And I just, I was leaving early and the kids were getting involved in sports. The girls were jumping horses and I just wanted to be there. And so I didn't think it was fair to them. So I stepped away and been friends with the Ron Conway for a long time. And Ron started taking myself and our, my older son, Nathaniel, to Y Combinator out here. And so we were doing, we'd pick a company or two here and there. And finally, after one or two or three times, he said, you know, why don't you just start a fund? I'll help you. I'll, I'll invest. I'll introduce you to LPs. And so we said, fine. And, and uh, unfortunately for Scooter, he had caught on to a startup before that Ron said that, that he really liked and he had joined uh, the startup and he was real early in, in, in the process. I think he was, I can't remember employee six, eight, something like that. And he said, nice timing for me, dad. And I, <laughs> I said, don't worry, you're going to get a great education right where you are. Exactly what you need mm-hmm. is to see what goes on and why, why, how these companies build themselves. And luckily for him, he went into a space that was there. The company was a pioneer in it. And they got on, went on a crazy run rate and got bought within a year while they were raising their Series A by Twitter. So we spent another year and a half or so at Twitter. So understand what the large corporations also look like, which he didn't, he wanted to come back to the fund. And so at that point, I'd gone out and looked to hire, you know, Bill taught me one thing, get a good team. So I was looking for a couple guys with diverse backgrounds, didn't want to be so sector focused. And was introduced to one of my partners through the first round capital uh, guys, my, Michael Ma. Um, and then Michael, Yale undergrad, Harvard MBA guy, sold his company to Google, went to work at Google, uh, my, Google my business mobile for a while, and then wanted to get back in the venture space. And uh, luckily I got introduced. And then other partner, I was at an event with Ron at YC, and two of the founders of Y Combinator are now on our board, introduced me to my other partner, Mike Miller. I give him a hard time, which you'll understand being a domer that he's from Michigan State undergrad. So, <laughs> you know, that rivalry. And, <laughs> but he's a PhD in experimental particle physics out of Yale, MIT fellow. He started a company in what they used to call data storage. Now is the cloud. His company got bought by IBM. and. Uh, he was moved on from IBM and was looking to get back into space and got fortunate to find him. And then Matt Mulvey now just came on board. Another He was at Notre, Notre, another Domer. He mm-hmm. was at Notre Dame with Nathaniel. He came from a big crossover fund called Code 2. And then he went. He left there and went to get some experience in the, um, in the running companies. So he went to Eclipse Ventures and then was get, looking to get something new and we just happened to be the right timing. And so that's our team. Elizabeth has joined us um, also, another Notre Damer. So we got a lot of Notre Dame people there right now. What's been kind of the key to your success? I think I read you were an early investor in Pinterest and in GitHub. Um, you know, what What have been some of your successful investments, you know, unicorns, et cetera? Well, get, well my, we have... Uh, 
We have a bunch of them. <laughs> so we're uh, you won't say how many. Example: our first our first fund, um, we raised. It, you know, it's a team, right? It's a team effort. Yeah. So the first we I made everybody work for like three months without pay for uh, to see if we could work together before we formed a fund. And I warehoused like 20 some investments first, and then I dropped them back in at the fund eventually. But, you know, you have such a different background. We can look at so many different things. Everybody has different contacts in the area. And, you know, we we move fast. We like to get in early and, um, you know, we rely on each other, but we also rely on some of our LPs who are investors, especially early on. Our, our first fund was 28 million. We've already returned that, I think it's 1.8 times, and we have 21 or 22 unicorns still sitting in the fund. We have been keeping our fingers crossed, but uh, I have a good team. You know, I, you know, it's, this isn't all me by far. And, and what I ended up doing, which is tough to do in a lot of businesses as you get too large, I love the team, so I, I made everybody equal. We all get the same pay. We all get the same carry. And we're not fighting over deals. We're, we're making deals together. That's great. Congratulations. We'll be back in a few minutes learning about successful investing from Joe Montana. You'll find all of our show notes and links at thementorsradio.com. For those who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or on one of the many podcast platforms that carry our show, if you enjoy these conversations, please give us a good review and tell a friend. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with Joe Montana discussing success and happiness. So, Joe, what does the word success mean to you? That you're happy. <laughs> it's a, you, I think. Well, then I'd ask the other one, what does happiness mean to you then? <laughs> you know, I, I just think that you, when you feel good about the place you're in, not just at work, but at home with your family, watching kids get to where you were <laughs> years ago and watching them still work and becoming successful. And that I think is the biggest thing. It makes you feel good. And I think that's success because that's what you want from, you want to see, you want to see that your kids have the intuition, the drive, and they're not looking for a handout. Mm -hmm. I mean, they know the situation, but yet they're all out there doing their own thing. And we're here to help and steer <laughs> when necessary. So do you have any advice for a dad who's two sons, both domers as well? By the way, for our listeners, that, that's a Notre Dame graduate um, who quit their corporate day jobs to go into business together. And I'm in there as a, a non-executive chairman. Any advice for working with your kids? It's easier than you think. What I try to do is I try to give them as much early on in the funds, as much responsibility as possible. Um, and then you watch him take initiatives to go hire his own CEO coach um, he's, you know, they're thinking in the right direction. 
um, for Nathaniel. And because and then Elizabeth came on who. You know, when I first brought her up to the partners, everything got quiet because they were just thinking, oh, another family member. But I go, first of all, I'm just going to tell you, you're going to you're going to love to hate her. Because in the first few months, you're going to hate her. But she's the glue. She's going to tell us everything we're doing wrong, what we need to do to tighten the ship up. Because we were five guys running. And sure enough, you know, what the one partner from the Michigan State guy, Mike, said to me one day after about six, eight months, he goes, you know, the best hire ever was Elizabeth. <laughs> I said, I told you you were going to learn to love her. But I think it's fun just to sit back. It allows you to watch them and help them in certain areas, and but yet let them make mistakes at the same time. Because it's like anywhere else. You have to make them to understand what, you know, can't be perfect. All I mean, you can be perfect. You want to try to be perfect, but you know you're going to make a mistake. It's just uh, that being there when when you can help them. So I got to ask you this for all of our Kansas City listeners, which there are many of. You played for the Chiefs for two seasons. What was your favorite barbecue place in KC? Oh, there was a place it's called Jack Stacks now. Back mm-hmm. then, that was a lot of the ones that are there now. I mean, obviously, the two big ones were there, and they were always good to go to. But this one was out, but one of the their places was out by where we lived, and so it was easy to get in and out. And they have these crown prime ribs that are off the chart. <laughs> so, <laughs> Jack's Tax is a good one. There's so many in Kansas yeah. City. I thought you might pick Joe's for the name, if nothing else, but it's a great barbecue. It used to be called Oklahoma Joe's. Now it's just called Joe's. Yeah. That's a great one. There are so many. That's the bad part about that is that there's too many of them and they're so good. You can't get to all of them. By the way, one thing that you mentioned in terms of reaching your dreams is envisioning your success you thought of yourself playing in the nfl when you were just a young kid you mentioned the movie caddyshack as as one of your favorites because a lot of that was visualizing your success as a matter of fact i like to think of bill murray (laughs) kind of ruining the flower bed but he was kind of doing the same thing he was visualizing himself at the masters is that important yeah i i think i think you go kind of where your mind goes right i mean if I always tell people the only person who really has to believe in you is you, right? Because they're, they're going to people who are going to doubt you all the time. But as long as you don't give up on yourself and you see yourself being successful, you're going to have a great chance to to be there and being prepared because you'll get an opportunity, but you have to be prepared for it when it comes. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that I, I look back on my career and that I was always ready at that point in time when I got the opportunity. Well, Joe, thanks for sharing your wisdom with us today. Your parents raised you well. You're truly one of a kind. You've led a remarkable life both on and off the field, and it's no wonder that you're continuing to have such great success. To our listeners, Please go to TheMentorsRadio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us on the major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Google, or on iHeartRadio Worldwide. Please join us next week for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too experienced to stop learning. Thank you. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life, 
and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.